We're in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. For those of you new to, to the uh, Christian faith, Nehemiah is in the middle of the book before the Psalms, that big book with all the Psalms in the middle. Just turn back a few pages and you'll find Nehemiah prior to that. Set the stage. Nehemiah and, and the people of God in Jerusalem are building the wall as God called them to do, and yet they're getting resistance, resistance from people uh, who don't want them to build that wall. But look at verse 6. So this is what, where we'll start today and how they responded to the resistance. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And then to verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night with Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us night by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servant nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes at each, kept his weapon at his right hand. Grass withers, flowers fade. The word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Sometimes in life, the old saying is true. It gets better. It gets worse, rather, before it gets better. 
I learned this yet again last August when some old friends and I went out west and climbed an 8,400-foot mountain, a snow peak mountain out in British Columbia. Of course, going up a mountain is tough inherently. This is not just your average hike. It was mountaineering in the true sense. And for three days, we hiked steep trails through forests, snow fields, remnants of rock slides, and even beautiful meadows of heather, kind of like the hills were alive with the sound of music. Some of the toughest and most dangerous parts of the upward climb came uh, mountaineering up the final push in the snow across uh, traversing snow ridges and going across a glacier with crevasses as well as going basically straight up to the peak. And then that blessed moment came on the mountain. We started to go down. Yes, we started going down, and the very thought of it just brought bliss to my heart. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be faster and even fun. And I have to tell you, at one point as we were coming down the mountain on the snow part... We did something called glaciering. You know what glaciering is? Glaciering is where you put on your, uh, uh, your rain pants, you sit on your rear end and put your feet out in front of you, and you slide down the mountain for thousands of feet. It is way fun. Now, at that point, I was thinking, man, this going down is awesome. But what I had forgotten that it, is that at some points in life, it gets worse before it gets better. What I'd forgotten is that going down a mountain isn't as easy as you think. With a 40 to 50 pound pack on your back, it's easy going down to lose your balance and to fall, to trip. There were many of us who were struggling with that. And the jarring impact of going down a mountain affects your knees. It hurts your knees way worse than you'd ever imagine. And without me, I have bad knees, as some of you don't know, and it took a toll on mine. And that's when it got really bad. After a day and a half of going down the mountain, my knees were killing me, and we came finally to uh, a stream we had to go across and walk through the water. And I sat down, and I was in such excruciating pain, I had to stop completely. The pain was so bad I couldn't move, and all of us wondered if I would make it. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. We anticipate good times after hardship. We long for uh, when, uh, good things to happen when we've had intense times and hardships in our lives. And guys, that's exactly what we find today in Nehemiah chapter 4, where we're, we're going to look at a leader and a people who face a distinct reality that sometimes it really does get worse before it gets better when you're building the kingdom of God. And the question we're going to wrestle with is this today. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to increasing resistance of enemies to kingdom efforts in our lives and our families? How should we seek God when disappointment and hardship seem to cascade one after the other? Well, Nehemiah is going to show us the godly response when things like this happen and when things seem to be getting worse. So let's start by looking and uh, really remembering the situation that we find Nehemiah and God's people in. You might remember, Nehemiah returned to his family's home in Judah and Jerusalem uh, 
to his family's homeland, and he went to rebuild a holy city and to reform a holy people. More specifically, he goes to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, which had been torn down 150 years earlier by the Babylonians when they raised Jerusalem to the ground. He arrives in Jerusalem with the backing of the local superpower king, Artaxerxes, whom he knows personally because he serves him on his council as a cupbearer, if you will, as a direct uh, part of the cabinet, if you will, of the king. He comes into Jerusalem, he assesses the situation, and he begins mobilizing the people and the leaders to start rebuilding the wall. Already an amazing thing has happened in this book is that God calls a cupbearer to a king to become a city builder. We might imagine the enthusiasm that was coming out of this with all these people who had been beaten down for years that were living in Jerusalem. That Nehemiah comes in and mobilizes them to start building the wall. I mean, imagine you live in an area that's a lot like what we see in pictures today of, of Detroit, just de- decrepit and, and downtrodden, and it's all of a sudden starting to look like downtown Charlotte. New high-rises, everything looks spiffy and clean. And you're thinking, man, I want to be a part of that because we always get excited about new or restored things. However, as last week, Daryl told us there were some neighbors who were not happy about all these changes. They were the local slumlords. They were the bullies of the neighborhood who mocked the efforts of the Jews to rebuild the city. Their names were Samballot, who was a Samaritan, and Tobiah, an Ammonite. Now, these bullies had been difficult already in chapter 2, among other chapters in our book, as we're going to see. But as we saw last week, they upped the ante of being difficult. They actually started using words like fists. Uh, They jeered the Jews to discourage them in verses 1 through 5 of our text. They said things like, ah, they'll never finish the work. Or even if they finish the work, it's such bad quality that a fox will jump on it. It'll all fall down. And how did the people respond? Well, Daryl pointed out so well last week, they kept working. They were faithful to persevere at doing God's call in their lives. Now, at this point, we're like going, yeah. You want to cheer them on? You're like, you go, brothers. You keep pushing hard. Indeed, all of us have that inside of us that when we get a little pushback in life, we'll say, I'm going to live through this. I'm going to keep pushing. And get, it, get through this and we're going to stick to what we're called to do. Why? Because sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. However, that's not the end of the story in the book of Nehemiah here. It gets worse before it gets better. Look at verse 7 and 8 in our text. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. The conflict escalates. It goes from mocking words now to threats coming from multiple enemies. In fact, I would submit to you that this 
these multiple enemies come together in what would be a coalition of terror, like Al-Qaeda. And their goal was to resist the kingdom-building effort that was going on. Who was the coalition of terror? What was that coalition? Well, if you, you can think of it this way. If this right here is Judah with Jerusalem in it, right here, to the north was Sanballat and the Samaritans. To the east, over here, was Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south was a guy named Geshem and the Arabs. And to the west were the Ashdodites. That is what used to be the Philistines. You see what was going on? They were surrounded. Surrounded by hostile nations. And according to Nehemiah, they had committed themselves to actually taking down the efforts of God's people. And they did that because they were angry. They were angry about the city walls being built. And why were they angry? Well, it's simple. They couldn't sweep in with raiding parties and steal food. They couldn't take advantage of, of God's people uh, in the city. Uh, they could oppress and do what they wanted to have their own lifestyle. So like Al-Qaeda, they plotted violence, terror, so as to cause confusion and disorganization among the rebuilders of this city. You see how the resistance is escalating and how the people were now, and not just nervous and fearful, but were now in real danger. We're talking violence and hostilities. Now, some of us may think, now, well, ho now, ho now, wait a minute. Why in the world would this happen to God's people? They were doing a good thing. They were obeying God. It says here, after they got verbal threats, they kept working. They kept doing what God was doing. And yet, God allows this thing to escalate. They were seeking him. What gives? Well, what you need to understand is this, how the, this is how the kingdom of God works when we build it. In church, in our homes, the rule of Christ, when it takes over our own hearts, happens like this. When we do anything to build God's kingdom, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. See, what our secret hope is, is that if I just obey God a little bit, I'll appease Him and oh, we're good. Everything will be comfortable and nice and easy. Oh no. The rhythm of Scripture is it gets harder. It gets harder with external resistance to the kingdom and even internal resistance to the kingdom. Take, for example, the book of Acts, which had external and internal resistance occurring within it. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts, it's a glorious time in the church. Peter and the uh, disciples and apostles start preaching. People come to Christ in the thousands. It is unbelievable how successful the church is at this point. And at the end of chapter 2, there's this beautiful picture of the church where they're eating together, they're praying together, they're worshiping together. You know, it's this idyllic picture of life as the church. But then comes chapter 3. In chapter 4, where the apostles start preaching in public and, and people start pushing back. The, extra, the authorities, the Jewish authorities, arrest them, throw them in jail. 
Then there is in chapter 5, internal resistance, when Ananias and Sapphira um, in the church lie about how much they're giving to God's kingdom and try and impress everybody about it when they're holding back some for their own. They're lying. They don't have integrity. And God strikes them down right there in an act of discipline. And then internal resistance occurs even in chapter 6 of Acts. The church in Jerusalem experiences conflict over ethnic uh, favoritism. There were conflicts around the Jewish Uh, The Hebraic Jews fighting with the the Grecian Jews because their widows weren't being taken care of. And then finally, in chapter 7 of Acts, some of you know what happens that just changes everything for the church. The external resistance hits in the martyrdom of Stephen as he was killed for preaching the gospel to the Jews. We think... Christianity, even in being in church, is meant to feel like bliss. When in point of fact, the more you labor for the kingdom, the more you build the kingdom, the more resistance comes from both outside and inside the church. What does this mean for us? For those of us who are sharing our faith in this year of gathering, for those of you who are trying to grow in your marriages... For those of you who are trying to change the way you parent because your just mind is blown on how to parent your child. Or if you're seeking to be even more holy and have more integrity in your job, don't be surprised if it gets worse before it gets better. Don't be surprised. Sin, Satan, and the world will push back on you. The question is for us then, how should we respond to this? Well, part of it is we have to adjust our expectations. Second Timothy 3 says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. How about that for a promise? Yeah! I want to live for Jesus and you'll be persecuted. Yeah! We have to change our expectations of what will come our way. But also... We can learn from what's going on in our text. In verse 9 of our text, look at what happens with, uh, with Nehemiah and the people. It says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against the day and the night. Nehemiah led the people in prayer again, praying without ceasing. They then would go out after that and set up a guard. In other words, they prayed trusting in God's sovereignty, His protection, As the God who is their refuge, their shield, their ultimate and only real shield and protection. And they acted out of human responsibility to protect themselves. When you face escalating trouble for following Jesus, pray about who God is and what he can do for you. Do that first. You notice that rhythm in our text, right? They pray first. They go to God first. Lord, this is hard. We're struggling. And then they act in response to that. This is the rhythm we see throughout the book of Nehemiah. Prayer and then action. How do we as Americans typically respond when we got trouble? 
We do one of two things. We go passive in the sin of Adam and say, la, 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 I don't want to think about trouble. Or the other end is we get her done. Or as Coldplay would say, fix me. We try to fix it ourselves, but Christianity does something really different. It says, I get my heart aligned with God first in prayer, in who He is, and who I am in Him, and what He is for me, how He is for me, and how He wants to save me, and then I act accordingly. Here's why this matters. Praying and acting will always result in more pushback. This whole story is about an escalating pushback of two kingdoms in collision. And that occurs in your hearts, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships. It occurs in our jobs. Kingdom conflict happens more than you realize. But you have to know something. And we all kind of have to admit this inherently. Threats take their toll. Look at verse 10 with us. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Here's what's happening. The coalition of terror has sent out propaganda. They've been on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and working out through the news that they are coming with power and going to kill and take on God's people. And, I mean, they're overwhelming numbers versus the numbers of God's people. And with this threat, the people start to get afraid. And they get afraid in three ways. The first shows up in verse 10. They felt their weakness. They were, in other words, they were unskilled labor, and the work was draining, and they were wearing out. You got to remember, they were trying to build this wall up in less than 60 days. As a result, they felt inadequate, like it was too much. Have you ever felt that way? Inadequate? It's too much? Second, in verse 11, they were uh, bucking together, buckling rather, under the threats of death. You saw what they said in verse 11. They said, they're going to come and kill us. They were buckling under those threats. I mean, how would you feel if we knew in this church that somebody was coming with Uzis to our church. And they wanted to take us out because we were Christians. You know, people in the persecuted church in the world actually deal with this in places like Nigeria. They fear imprisonment in places like China. Third, they had the tug of family tempting them. This, this verse in verse 12 is hard to translate in the Hebrew but I think the ESV gets it pretty right. And the implication is this. Family friends who lived outside of Jerusalem were coming in and saying, have you heard they're coming after you guys? You need to come back out here with us, stop the work, and be safe. Yeah, that was their theme at that time, be safe. <laughs> That's a well-intentioned benediction. But there's a whole lot more going on here than just being safe. Folks, when we feel afraid or threatened by people or a situation, our temptation is to run. Sometimes, I'll tell you, that's a good idea. And you should. 
However, when God calls us to a task for his kingdom and escalating resistance comes our way, we're called to one thing, faithfulness. Faithfulness to the work. We are called to stand our ground, to hold the line. That's the language of warfare. The fighting the good fight. It's like the movie We Were Soldiers with... um, with a guy named Hal Moore who flew in with a bunch of helicopters as the first reconnaissance into Vietnam in the early uh, 1960s. You've probably seen the movie. They fly in, they fly in right into the middle of a, of a terrible firefight uh, right beside a major base for the North Vietnamese. And they're surrounded for days on end and they have to endure uh, assaults after assault after assault with limited resources and men flying in and out and guys getting killed. They held the ground as long as they could, and then after uh, destroying that particular uh, base, they moved on. But that was the thing. They kept holding the line. That's a picture of our life. And you see, we want to live in our American Christian world where we think we're in peacetime terms. But as John Piper rightly says, we're, under, we're in war, guys. We're in the church militant. We fight a different war, a spiritual war that plays out in our families and our culture. We're called to fight the good fight and hold the line And we're called to do so by persevering and doing the good that God calls us to do. But here's the thing. (laughs) This call to hold the line and to have courage to be, if you will, a warrior. Well, we know that's difficult, don't we? It's hard. And that's why we need a Nehemiah. A leader with courage to lead us. To go places we wouldn't go with ourselves. And that's what Nehemiah does in verses 13 through 14. Listen to this. He says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places I stationed the people and their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah redeploys the people. That's the first thing he does. He redeploys the people by putting them at strategic places along the the wall. Now, verses 15 through 23, you can go and read that, uh, explains how he did this. You know, he had everyone return to the work. Half the people were just focusing on construction alone. The other half held their spears and bows and shields in one hand while helping out with the other. So they have a a shield or spear in one arm, and then another arm, they're carrying things around and helping out ways they can. The leaders were in the background, and they were encouraging them, cheering them on to carry out the work. All of them, it says, carried a sword by their side. The sword in that time was like the gun in our time. And they rotated everybody around in a watch day and night. Even the leaders would stay up all night and be on call in case something happened. That's why they wore their clothes all night long. And Nehemiah said, finally, you've got to listen out for the trumpet so we can rally if we're attacked at a certain point along the wall. Nehemiah reorganized and redeployed the people. And he did it to teach them to watch and pray. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? 
He says, look, I'm coming back one day. And his disciples say, hey, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? He said, watch and pray. Pay attention spiritually. And pray and seek me in all that I do. Isn't this amazing? The cupbearer becomes a city city builder, becomes a warrior. It reminds me of a scene at the end of The Lord of the Rings. uh, The Return of the King. For those of you familiar with that movie, Aragorn, the hero of the movie, and the reluctant king and rightful king of Middle-earth gathers his troops at the doors of Mordor, the Black Gate. And that's where the wicked uh, kingdom of Mordor with, with Sauron was located. And with this tiny troop of men, he decides to take on Sauron and his giant army to provide a diversion for uh, his friends. And as he does that, and as they face the army that is coming out of Mordor and its huge a huge army, tens of thousands against their couple of thousand, the men of the West grow fearful. They're backing up in their feet. They're like, whoa, this is going to be way harder than I thought. But at that moment, the king steps up and says to his troops, ready to flee, hold your ground. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, but it is not this day. This day we fight. By all you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. Aragorn called his men to fight, and they stood their ground and fought against an army vastly bigger than theirs and ended up winning through extraordinary means. That's our story. That is our story. And what Aragorn did that day is what Nehemiah does with the people. He preaches the gospel to them. He preaches the gospel to them in this simple way. In three things, he says, don't be afraid of them. They're just men. Remember the Lord. And it goes on to say, the Lord who is awesome. You know, a better title for that is a terrible Lord. So powerful, so out of control in the face of enemies, he can blow people away, even armies. Folks, that is exactly what Moses said to the people of Israel as they stood at the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's armies at their back. He said, don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. In dealing with odds in life that feel too big for you in any circumstance, remember that you don't do the saving, God does. You don't do the delivering, God does. And you respond to His grace. Remember what He did when something feels too big for you. Remember what He did to the superpower of the world at its time, Egypt. As he caused the water of the Red Sea to flow over them after his own people had escaped. Second, 
he preaches the gospel again. In verse 20 of our text, he says this, Our God will fight for us. Our God is, in other words, a warrior. And Christ is our captain. He stood up to the external resistance of his critics, such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even the Romans. He stood up to demons and the power, the supernatural powers of those people, of those uh, evil uh, enemies. Jesus even stood up to nature to advance his kingdom. Remember him calming the storm? Well, Jesus not only stood up as a warrior to the external resistance, Jesus stood up to the internal resistance. Remember when he said, I've got to suffer, go to Jerusalem, suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And his disciples like Peter said, what are you talking about? No way. You're not doing that. Now, you're going to be a great king who rises up in power so we can have life on our own terms. But Jesus rebukes even him. And rebukes his cohorts, the disciples, when they argue about power, not understanding that real power comes in service in the kingdom of God. And that's what God calls us to do, to serve, to give ourselves away because we have experienced the giving love of Christ, that he has tamed our soul as our captain and calls us to hold the line for the kingdom third thing that he calls, Nehemiah calls the people of God to do is fight. Fight for your, he says, your brothers, your sons, your wives, and your homes. In other words, fight in love. Fight in love. This is not a hatred fight. That's what's different in our world and how we do things in politics in America, how we do relationships sometimes, is when we fight, we fight with hatred, like I'm going to take you down and out. But nah, this is a different kind of love. This is a protective love that says, I will fight for those I love and fight even in love against my enemies. We fight a war of love, which is very different from the way the world fights. This is how we are to respond to an increasing escalation of resistance. When things get worse before they get better, we pray. We remember the gospel that Christ is our warrior. We work in what he's called us to do. Just in faithfulness, keep doing good, persevere. And we fight with a deep love. A deep love that can only come from Jesus. In conclusion, last I left you in my opening illustration... I was sitting last summer, about this time, by a stream in such agonizing pain that uh, I wasn't sure I was going to make it, and nobody else, well, everybody else wondered if I was going to make it as well. I was the weak link that day. But you know what happened? One of our guides took off across the stream and started literally running down the hill. This guy was like a gazelle. I was impressed. He ran down the hill and went somewhere I don't know where, the other guy, he was, uh, he was finding some good Advil. And I popped four of them real fast and said, thank you, Jesus, make this stuff work. We rested there by the stream for 30 minutes, just breathing, uh, all of us catching our breath. It had been a hard uh, walk down. And then, out of the blue, an amazing thing happened. 
the first guide came back up the hill. And he crossed across the stream. He grabbed my pack, put it on his back, picked me up. We walked across the stream, went down about another 45-minute walk to our our next base camp. And he was beside me the whole way, encouraging me. I wasn't enough that day. But God provided for me a hero. A hero who was more than enough to even carry the burden and to cheer me on as I fought the good fight and persevered. It's true for you today. Let Christ be your warrior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we now come to you and pray that you would help us to see this larger truth of the gospel that you have called us to follow you and to hold the line even when we're afraid. And Lord, give us the courage to admit our fear, but also to listen to the gospel that you are a warrior fighting for us in all kinds of circumstances. When our marriages are struggling, when our parenthood seems to be going awry, when our friendships are faltering and we're wondering if we're really going to be loved Meet us there, Lord, to hold the line and to wait on you and to love us as our captain and to lead us to fight the good fight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand as we sing our fellowship. What a fellowship, what a joy to find, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. From all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms.